thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. We'll see you in about 10 days time for a discussion on a twin turboprop aircraft that saw heavy action during the Vietnam conflict and is still being used by special forces today. That's right. Here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, episode 138, it is all about the OV-10 Bronco with a guest who flew more than 260 missions in it over Vietnam. They were trying to produce a jack-of-all-trades aircraft, a multi-purpose plane that would serve counterinsurgency, light attack, and uh, reconnaissance. When I was flying it in Vietnam, I flew it out of Thailand, and our main mission was the Ho Chi Minh Trail, stopping logistical traffic. And we were mostly forward air control with smoke rockets and directing uh, fighters on targets. And we feature a guest co-host who has flown over 1,000 hours in the Bronco more recently in support of special operations. The OB-10, it's a great aircraft. It's still serving today. In the, in the past few years, it's uh, given us a lot of uh, things to think about when it comes to the future development of armed Overwatch. Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. Hello and welcome to the show. I am your host, Jello, and yeah, we have a great discussion coming up on the OV-10 with two generations of Bronco Flyers, but... First, a couple quick announcements and then a few listener questions. Anyway, I hope everyone is doing well and it seemed like most of you enjoyed last week's Day Carrier Landings Part 3 episode with Dale Bourbon, which makes me happy because I was a little anxious about repurposing the happy hour discussion since it was a little non-standard. And as always, I was the only one that was worried about that. You all seem to not mind. And so, yeah, appreciate that. Now, some listeners since pointed out that the MPQ Dale referred to was most likely the AN MPQ, which was a truck-mounted automatic tracking radar computer and communication system for aircraft command guidance and radar bomb scoring, I'm told. According to Wikipedia, it was for ground-directed bombing. An operator would manually plot a target, then use the manual bombing tables to plot the release point for striking the target after which a radar operator used the MPQ to acquire and track the bomber near the initial point and then direct them to the bomb release point. So there you go. I always learn something new on these episodes, I'll tell you. And then also, I don't know if it was on that episode or maybe a previous episode, or perhaps it was on my recent Top Gun Maverick trailer reaction video on YouTube. But either way, somewhere along the way, I said the Ukraine and it's simply Ukraine. My bad. All right, let's see. I've got a couple emails today. Let's go over those. First is from Curtis, who says, I have a question after hearing about Scratch's story of his nickname from the Snowbirds episode. We hear lots about baskets getting ripped off from time to time, but has a boom ever been claimed as a trophy for the ready room, i.e. broken off in flight? 
There is a story about a Royal Australian Air Force tanker losing its boom, but has this occurred at any other time, specifically in the U.S.? All right, Curtis. Well, I put your question to our Big Wing Tankers episode 85 guest, Sluggo, who says, quote, not only has it happened, it happened to me, and I have the pictures to prove it. Refueling a Saudi F-15 during Desert Shield, my first air refueling mission, the Saudi Eagle ripped off our nozzle in what is called a brute force disconnect, and that just doesn't sound good. It's a chapter in my book, Tanker Pilot, Lessons from the Cockpit. The guy underran us and the boom could not disconnect in time. When our boomer told the Saudi to break away, the pilot pushed the throttles and stick forward and down he went. Snap. You could hear it and feel it through the entire airplane. Wow. All right. There you go, Curtis. It's happened to our friend Sluggo and you can read about it in his book, Tanker Pilot, Lessons from the Cockpit, which you can find on Amazon, of course, but also you can go to fighterpilotpodcast.com and go to our uh, shop section and under the literature you can find his book there as well thanks for the question all right next is an email from ted from san jose california he said i read an article recently that the air force is planning on retiring the first batch of f-22 raptors do you think the arrival of the f-35 was a factor in this do you see the f-22 as a failure when compared to the success of the f-35 just curious to get your thoughts Well, Ted, my thoughts are, I didn't think it would be related, and I would not call the F-22 a failure by any stretch. But speaking of stretch, I did put your question to him. He was our F-22 episode 61 guest. You might remember he flew the F-22 as well as the F-15. Stretch responded, the retirement of the early block F-22s is because they are not upgradable and are more difficult and costly to maintain versus newer F-22s. This is not at all tied to the F-35. The F-22 has been very successful in its role as an air dominance fighter. And then Stretch goes on, the F-35 is an outstanding strike platform. Both airplanes perform the roles they were designed to do very well. Now, his comment about a successful strike platform reminds me of the intro of our episode, I think it was 77 or 78, but with Cinco talking about the F-35 the first time. And the little sound clip I chose to use was about air to ground, interestingly. And we all think of the F-35 as this air dominance fighter and stealth fighter, et cetera, and air to air and how it's going to revamp that. But uh, apparently a lot of it has to do with its ability to interdict as well. So thank you for that, Ted. And I hope you enjoyed Stretch's response, which is certainly more nuanced than I would have come up with. And then the last one is an email from, let's call him DC. And he says, I would love to hear from an expert on how GPS jamming works and whether fighters still have inertial backup or wish they had it. Isn't all GPS jamming from ground-based transmitters? Can't aircraft GPS antennas just shield out signals from below the aircraft? I've heard the Russians are infamous for GPS jamming and may be occurring around Ukraine. Does the U.S. or other allies jam GLONASS? How does U.S. degrade civilian GPS signals in a war zone without impacting NATO forces? Well, DC, these are good and relevant questions, but frankly, I don't know the answers, and I'm sorry to say, I'm not going to find out. You might be wondering then, the rest of you, why I even bother mentioning it, and I guess I just frankly want to honor people's requests and good questions, but there's going to be certain questions I cannot or will not answer, particularly if it's not something I have a lot of expertise on and it would take a lot of research. Now, I could put this out to the audience or my network and try to find someone like Stretch and Sluggo to help out, but that was a really detailed question, DC, and I just think we're going to let that one go because a lot of it's probably also protected information. But thank you. 
And then finally, in re-listening to last week's episode, I realized I left a part of Lucas's phone call question out, and that was he asked me which was my favorite. And I guess the cop-out answer would be Lucas, whichever one I was wearing at the time, at least as far as squadrons go. And there's a lot of cool designs out there. Of course, everyone loves the VFA 103 Jolly Rogers with the uh, skull and crossbones. But as far as patches go, I was, or at least squadron patches, I was in a lot of squadrons. Three of them happened to be orange, which is interesting. Uh, You know, orange isn't necessarily my favorite color, but hey, we made them work. And I think on my shoulders, my favorite patches were my Top Gun patch, just because of what it represented, as well as my 3000 hour F-18 patch, which I enjoyed, but only towards the end of my career. All right, that will do it for listener questions for this week. Thanks for submitting those as always. Now, before we get to the feature interview, I want to introduce a guest co-host who will help us understand today's topic. You regular listeners, you know, usually our co-hosts are folks who have been on the show before, but not so with Phil Clay, who joins me now. Welcome, Convoy. Jello. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Yeah, you're welcome. So I got to give a little background here, and maybe you can too, but you and I were Top Gun instructors together at Get This Convoy 20 years ago now. Yeah. After that, you had a somewhat... I think, non-traditional career path before you retired from the Navy as a commander. Tell us about your activities over the last couple of decades. Yeah. So after leaving Top Gun, you know, 9-11 had just happened. So I went off to do some initial work with CENTCOM. They needed the Navy rep on their staff. Just shortly thereafter, I went to the department head tour at VF-81. But during that time, I stayed closely uh, tied to some friends at US SOCOM. After my department head tour, I was recruited to come over and work inside a Navy Special Warfare Development Group where I stayed for the next 10 years. I kind of fell off the F-18 map Mm -hmm. and went into uh, that uh, dark side, if you will. (laughs) But from there, I got uh, that's where I became familiar with the topic that we're discussing today. Okay. After that, after I retired, I worked for Textron for a little while. And then I've been working for the uh, Air National Guard here in Oklahoma City, working flying the MC-12, doing uh, some training for those crews here. Okay. Now, you do have some OV-10 experience, which is why I asked you to help out with this episode. Our guest, as we'll soon hear, he flew the Bronco during the Vietnam War and again towards the end of his Air Force career. And after the interview, you can update us on how the OV-10 is still serving over 60 years later. But any big picture thoughts before we give the interview a listen? You've already heard it. I was there, obviously. But what should the listener know before we get to it? Yeah, I think he said it right when he said, you know, it's a great machine. It was kind of an aircraft that was built with a lot of things in mind that they didn't realize that they were building back then. It served its purpose uh, well in Vietnam, but it still does some great outstanding service with us today. We flew it as recent in combat in Iraq fighting ISIS. So a lot of great things that I'll talk to you after the interview uh, to give you guys a little bit more insight of what we did. Fantastic. Well, with that, let's get straight to it. Today, my guest is Carter Clark. He is a retired U.S. Air Force major, and he's going to help us understand the OV-10 Bronco. Hello, Carter. Hi, how are you doing today? I'm great, thank you. I appreciate you dialing in from Oregon, you said. Corvallis, Oregon, yep. Fantastic. I was just in Grants Pass last week, by the time folks hear this, a couple weeks ago, for my mother's 80th. We had some spring weather up there, so you doing okay with the weather? Yeah, it's uh, spring here. Flowers are blooming, and weather's getting a little warmer. Great. Should be good spring. Oh, I hope so. Well, you and I have been working at this for several months. I appreciate your patience. Here we are finally talking about the OV-10, but before we do, let's get to know you, Carter. Where are you from? Where'd you go to school? And give us a quick overview of your military career. Well, I'm a California kid. I grew up mostly in Malibu and 
graduated from Santa Cruz High School. So two beach towns, uh, did a lot of sports and surfing. And that was uh, growing up. Came up to Oregon to uh, Oregon State University for engineering. Finished that and went back to Southern Cal, the city of LA for engineering work. But Vietnam was on, the draft was on, and I didn't want to dig foxholes. So I joined the Air Force to fly. Standard flying routine, went to UPT, uh, undergraduate pilot training, T-41s, T-37s, 38s. Uh, earned an F-100 assignment to Vietnam and uh, flew the F-100, but only for a year because it was short-lived. It was just about being uh, pulled out of the inventory at that time. They moved me over to an OV-10 Bronco, which I flew for about three or four years and then moved back to the uh, fighters with the F-4 for about 10 years. The last five, six years in the military, before I retired, I was back in the OV-10 again. <laughs> Full circle. Okay. How many hours in the Bronco then? Uh, about 2,600. Wow. Flying it in attack roles, fact roles, artillery adjust roles, just a little of everything. Sounds like it. Well, I can't wait to unpack a lot of that. Let's start at the beginning. What can you tell me about the background that led to what we all know as the OV-10? And according to research provided me by my team, thank you very much, team, sounds like it was a tri-service exercise. So the Marines, the Army, and the Air Force all had a play in this. I started flying it in uh, 1970. You know, it had already been in existence and designed, so I wasn't part of the design team. Mm -hmm or anything. But in my reading, they were trying to produce a jack-of-all-trades aircraft, a multi-purpose plane that would serve counterinsurgency, light attack, and uh, reconnaissance, just a jack-of-all-trades. And so they built the OV-10, twin turboprop, tandem seat, front back. Uh, it was kind of a low-speed, low-to-medium threat, slow fighter of sorts. And was the crew two pilots or was the backseater something else? No, you didn't need a backseater in most of the planes. They did have a couple special planes that did require a backseater, such as in out of Thailand, we had a plane called the Paved Nail, which was a laser illuminator for smart bombs. That required a backseater. That was a navigator trained guy who worked with the backseat systems. The OV-10 was just, although it was two seats, it was normally flown by one guy. Okay. In Cambodia, we weren't there, by the way, but in Cambodia, they usually had a backseater who was fluent in French because the Cambodians, there are some of them that spoke French. I didn't fly that mission except a couple times, so I'm not too familiar with it, but normally front seat only. All right. So you talked about kind of a jack of all trades, and I think we'll get into that, but what was the OV-10's bread and butter when you flew it? Was it the forward air controlling or was it moving folks around the battlefield, which I think we'll get into what goes in the uh, back of the thing, or surveillance? Is there a bread and butter role for this aircraft? The Air Force typically used it for forward air control, but when I was flying it in Vietnam, I flew it out of Thailand. Our main mission was the Ho Chi Minh Trail, stopping logistical traffic trucks, tanks, vehicles, whatever. We didn't work with ground troops much on the trail. It was just a high threat area. But then occasionally we would shift and go fly out of Da Nang where we were working in country with army units. And in those missions, often besides forward air control, we would do our 
Army artillery as well as Navy artillery off the ships. Mm -hmm. So we did an artillery adjust. We also uh, helped defend the Nang airport and town proper by attack rolls where we carried five Mark 82s. Okay, so interdiction and obviously messing up the trail as much as you could. Did that include, I guess some of this is just now starting to come to light. They dropped all kinds of crazy things on the trail, including stuff that would go off later and surveillance type things. Was the OV-10 involved in any of that? When we were out on the trail, we weren't dropping bombs or anything special. Other aircraft did that. They dropped sensors on the trail to track traffic microphone, so forth, all that igloo white stuff out of Nacom Phnom. The OV-10, the way we flew it, uh, we had one guy in the airplane, unless somebody was getting checked out, it was a single-seater, essentially. Mm -hmm. We were mostly forward air control with smoke rockets and directing uh, fighters on targets. That was the bread and butter of the Ho Chi Minh Trail. In Vietnam, out of Da Nang, mostly, although we did fly out of some other bases, but primarily Da Nang, we would be working with Army units, battalion units, usually, and once again, forward air control. How many missions did you end up flying, Carter? You know, I don't know the exact number. I think it was 260-some-odd missions. Wow. Okay. That's crazy. And what model did you fly? As I look at, again, what my team's prepared for me, it looks like there's OV-10As, Bs, Ds, uh, what else? G. What did you fly back then? Well, the OV-10A Alpha was the primary plane that the Air Force had and flew. As I was saying, they also flew it out of Nakhon Phnom, Thailand, as a paved nail aircraft. It didn't really have a letter designator like an A, B, C, D. Most of those went to foreign imports or foreign sales, but we flew mostly the A model. Was that true at the end of your career as well? It was. I think the Marines had the D model, and there was a night version, counterinsurgency night version. Uh, I never saw that. I saw pictures of it, but it was a pretty good airplane. It could be used for so many different things. I never got to do a parachute drop, but apparently we had paratroop people that could fit in the cargo bay, jump out the back door. The aircraft were equipped, even our A models were equipped with little jump warning and jump lights, you know, that the pilot would turn on and tell the guys they were over the jump area. And of course, it was good for logistics. Later in my career, I flew it out of Sembach, Germany. We had a logistical package that we would load in there for deployments around the different parts of Germany. So the plane was a pretty jack of all trades. It was a good plane, did a lot of things. Yeah, I'm seeing a theme here. And so we don't need to go through the alphabet soup of all the different variants. People can read about that online. Really, the benefit of these interviews is, of course, your experiences. And so if you spent most of your time in the A, that's good enough. We'll use that as our baseline for today. And then, yes, I had it written down to ask you later, but I'll just cover it now, Carter, since you brought it up. I have a memory, and maybe I fabricated it, so I need you to help me, but I have a memory of an OV-10 at an air show that flew by, it wasn't super low altitude, but at some altitude. And then I want to say it pulled up into the vertical and out the back seemed like fell to me a couple paratroopers. Is that something they would have done at an air show? And is that what they would have done anyway? I've never heard of that being done at an air show in the States, but that certainly could possibly be. Hmm. All the uh, 
instructions and booklets that we had to read, you know, some of it talked about parachute drops, but I never did any of it. Okay. Well, invariably, when I say something like this on the show, someone will respond either email or YouTube or something. Oh yeah, I saw that too. Or no, you're crazy. So I'll just expect that I'm crazy for now because I don't remember what show. It's written in our manuals. That's one of the capabilities. Really? Okay. The picture I saw showed five paratroopers and I always wondered how they'd even fit in the cargo bay. It just seemed a little cramped, (laughs) but it's possible if they remove the rear cockpit ejection seat, maybe they could fit five in there. I don't know. Okay. Could you access the cargo area from the cockpit? Not while you're in the airplane. You're strapped into an ejection seat, much like, say, an F-4 or an F-18. You're not going to get up and go walk around. There's no walking space. It's only about three and a half feet tall in the cargo bay and about three feet wide and I think six or seven feet long. So it's kind of a tight fit. Yeah, they might sit with their legs around the guy in front of them, uh, perhaps. So uh, as long as it's not too long of a flight, maybe it could work. Oh, dear. Now, obviously, you were Air Force, and you talked about Germany, and it looks like there's a handful of other countries here on this list. I can read some off, but you had already said Thailand. Which others do you know of? Are you talking about where I flew? Well, that too, if you want, uh, as much as you're allowed to admit, but, (laughs) but just the proliferation of the aircraft itself. Well, the U.S. Air Force had them, and the Marines had them, U.S. Marines. The Navy flew out of South Vietnam. Uh, I think their call sign was Black Ponies. They used it as an attack plane in the River Delta area. But I don't think the Navy ever owned any. I think they were actually owned by the Marine Corps, and they were kind of borrowed. (laughs) Okay. The Air Force had some. Columbia got some. The Philippines, West Germany used them for uh, tow aircraft or target tows. Uh, I think they had a jet engine on the top. I've never seen one. There's a couple guys out of Carson City, Nevada, that bought two German OV-10s and took the jets off. And they've rebuilt them a little bit to look like an A model. Okay. Earlier when I said the tri-service, I said Army. I guess the Army wasn't involved. It must have been the Air Force, Navy, and Marine Corps. And then later on, I read here that NASA flew some. Of course, they flew everything. And then I guess they use these in these days even, some of the fire scouting and keeping track of what's going on in the summertime, probably up where you live. Cal Fire has them. I don't know if there are any of them in Oregon, but I've seen them in California. They're based out of Sacramento. Could you jump right back in one and go again? (laughs) (laughs) I'd love to try, but I think the uh, Cal Firebirds, I actually applied for looked into working for them for a short time, but some other things came up. So I didn't do that. But the Cal Firebirds have been stripped down quite a bit. The sponsons uh, have been pulled off, ejection seats taken out, armored plate taken out. So it must be a much better performing aircraft. Yeah. Typically when you get rid of all those things you don't need in that mission, it certainly would be. I read also Indonesia, you might've said that, Morocco. So yeah, a handful of places flew this thing. Tell me about its overall construction and looks. So it's, it's got a very unique look, I would say, with its twin engines and then the booms that go back and meet in the tail. So uh, what do you know about the looks and how did that affect when you flew it? It is a unique look straight ahead, looking at it nose on or from the side view. Uh, there's not too many planes that look anywhere similar. From the top, a plane view, 
It looks a little bit like a P-38 Lightning from World War II, except the wings are square-tipped rather than rounded. But twin booms, center section, fuselage that doesn't extend past the uh, wing, and twin engine, so forth. So it's similar to a 38 if you're looking from the top. Mm -hmm. The plane was built very sturdy. It's fully aerobatic, full six and a half Gs, although I know it's pulled more. <laughs> but uh, it's a solid airplane. You know, uh, some of the light bombers of World War II could not carry five 500-pound bombs. And the OV-10, I got to fly a couple missions out of Da Nang where we were defending the base perimeter from rocket attack. Mm -hmm. We were carrying five Mark 82, so wow. that's 2,500 pounds of load. Now, the plane typically on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, we flew with a 230 centerline tank. On the centerline, that's 1,500 pounds, two rocket pods of a, probably 250 pounds each. So quite a bit of weight on the airplane. I think the book says it can haul as much as 3,500 or 3,600 pounds. And with the weapons, was it something fancy or was it the good old grease pencil on the uh, windshield and you use some Zen? Uh, how was the aiming? We had a gun sight. Okay. A pressable gun sight with, I don't remember, zero mils to 200 mils or something. Sure. It was a mechanical gun sight, but it was pretty good gun sight. The plane could carry on those sponsored stations pretty much anything, you know, CBU, rockets, flares, bombs. It hauled everything. Did it have a gun? It had four M60 machine guns, hmm. two in each sponson with about 500 rounds of ammunition each. And I think, as I recall best, those guns shoot about 10 rounds a second. So you get about 50 seconds of firing out of each gun. You could fire them individually. You know, you could arm one or all four at the same time. You know, if you're on an attack mission and you wanted to stay out there for quite a while, you could do that. Wow. M60 is not a 20 millimeter, though. There is a gun pod that uh, OV-10 could carry on its center line with 20 millimeter in it. You didn't get a chance to do that? Never. Got, that was just in the book. But of all the different things it could carry, you had a chance. Obviously, you've already said the 500-pound bombs, probably rockets in the M60s. Anything else exotic or fun that you've employed from it? Night flares. Oh, okay. That's pretty much it. We had rocket pods that carried seven rockets each. Thicker Lao 68s. The Lao 3 carried 19, was much bigger. Right. We didn't carry those very often. I carried it a couple times in country, but never had them on the trail. I think that was the 2.75 inch Mighty Mouse, they sometimes call those rockets. 2.75 folding fin aerial rocket, FFAR. <laughs> there you go. Okay. And flares. Uh, earlier I said, fun ordinance. Maybe I should remember that we're talking about warfare here. So fun is probably a poor choice of words, but, and then, you know, we'll talk maybe at the end about some of the things the aircraft is doing today, but back then it was unguided only. You weren't obviously doing any sort of anti-radiation wild weasel stuff or uh, guided missiles or anything like that. No, we weren't carrying anything guided, but uh, there was conversation about carrying something, but never happened. Okay. But the pave nail birds, there are, I believe, 18 pave nails. That's the call sign of the squadron or the group that was out of NKP, Thailand. And 18 of the airplanes uh, were set up for laser illumination. So in that sense, yeah, they were guiding ordnance. 
mm-hmm. as a partnership, similar to the Buccaneer helping out the tornadoes and Desert Storm some years later. Okay. Now, what was it like to fly? I mean, big props, I, I would think. It could uh, get up and get out of its way pretty short distance, but very high, very fast. You said six Gs. How was it to fly? I think the book says six and a half Gs, but I've seen people quote seven and an eight. I'm not sure. Uh, maybe somebody's pulling a little too hard. <laughs> but it was uh, a little bit underpowered, especially at low speeds. One of the concerns was losing an engine on takeoff. I lost an engine about 70 knots down the runway before rotation at Da Nang. And I was on top of the instruments right away. I was watching them close and I saw it starting to happen. And I was pulling the throttle back to uh, abort the takeoff fairly quickly. And yet the plane still ran off the runway. Hmm. When you lose an engine on an OV-10, especially low speed, uh, it's hard to control. As a general comment, the plane was a little bit underpowered. You'd like to have a little more engine, maybe a PT-6 or something like that. A bigger engine would have made the adverse problems for losing an engine even worse. (laughs) Damned if you do, damned if you don't, you know, whichever way you go. Right. Did the engines turn the props in the same direction so it was worse to lose one or the other? No, they're kind of rotating over the top towards the cockpit. If you lose one, you're still going to have a lot of roll and yaw. Right. As long as both of them were working, you didn't have any problem with yaw or or roll or anything. It was nicely even powered. And did it fly with a stick or a yoke? I don't even know that. (laughs) That was a stick. We had a bomb release button, trigger for the guns. One thing I didn't mention was, and I didn't get to experience this, but some of the airplanes could be equipped with AIM-9s, oh. B-models and D-models held out on the wing, or they could carry a 100-gallon fuel tank out there. So <laughs> the plane was set up for a lot of stuff. Well, that begs the question, is the OV-10 credited with any kills? I mean, I can't imagine an AIM-9 would have been used, but maybe did it have a chance to shoot down another slower flying plane or something? No, I, I understand the A1 Sky Raider did shoot somebody down, but uh, the OV-10 never did. The conversation amongst all of us forward air controllers flying out on the trail was we were fairly close to North Vietnam. We were just across the border from it, and they could send a MiG after us, and there's no way we were going to get out of its way. We're just too slow to get away. So the best strategy was arm up your rockets point nose to nose at him and let him have him. <laughs> go down swinging, huh? Why have him close in behind you? You might as well go nose to nose. So everybody had different thinking on it, but I think there are quite a few guys that believe that was the best yeah. tactic for uh, taking a MIG on if one showed up. And if that didn't work, I would assume at that point you want to get down in the trees and make it as difficult as possible for him. Well, out on the trail, they uh, they had some pretty heavy artillery. They had 100 millimeter, 85, 57, oh. 37. We didn't like flying very low out there. <laughs> when I first got to uh, Vietnam, you know, we were flying out of Nacon Phnom, Thailand on the trail. We would go out there at 75, 8,500, almost 10,000 feet just to stay out of the gunfire. And of course, most of those guns go way past 10,000 feet, but it gave you a chance to dodge rounds. But then you'd go in country and all of a sudden we're at 1,500 feet. The threat was significantly less. 
mm-hmm. until they came out with the uh, SA7 Strela, you know, the similar to the Stinger. The Stinger, yeah. Well, what was the highest you ever flew one and what was the fastest? And it doesn't have to be the same time, but you probably didn't want to go too high. Was it pressurized? No, it wasn't pressurized. We had oxygen, we had G-suit hosing, uh, but it was not pressurized. Service ceiling kind of varied depending on how much weight you carried and how high you could go. Like I say, on the trail, we were flying around 10,000 feet or call it 7,500 to 10. I think the highest I ever took the plane was about 18,000, but the book says it could probably go up to 30 if it was lightly loaded. Maybe those Cal Fire aircraft can get all the way up there. All right. And what was the fastest you ever saw on it? 350. 351. (laughs) (laughs) Was 350 the limit? (laughs) Yeah, 350 was red line. There you go. All right. Well, that's pretty good. It's not a small aircraft. Like you said, if it's underpowered, that might have even taken a little work. That's another thing that surprises some people is they think of the O-1 bird dog as being a you know a small little Cessna airplane, which it is. Mm-hmm. And the Skymaster, the O-2, Cessna 337s uh, were a bit bigger with twin engines, but they're really small compared to an OV-10. An OV-10 was grossed out about 14,000. That puts it up there with some much heavier aircraft. When we carried a 230 centerline tank and two pods of rockets out on the trail, we were taking off around 13,000 pounds. Was your mission ever fuel limited? I would assume big turboprops have pretty decent efficiency. Yeah, the Garrett air research engines are pretty good on fuel. We burned about 10 pounds a minute. Internal fuel was about 1,500 pounds. And then the centerline tank, the 230, It's another 1,500, so you could get five hours out of it if you're real careful. I think most of the missions were probably four, four and a half hours. Which is plenty long in an ejection seat, in my opinion. (laughs) Some of the guys, uh, when they first got over there, sitting in an ejection seat for a half hour, an hour, you can get away with that, maybe an hour and a half, but about two-hour mark, your bottom got sore. And some (laughs) of the guys would go to the infirmary and ask for spine protection donuts. You know, when mm. when you have a spinal problem, you know, they give you these little donuts to sit on. But the boss said, yeah, you can't use those because it's not a proof with the ejection seat. Right. All that cushion will just compress while that's accelerating and that'll just be enough time to really mess you up. It took a month or two to get used to that seat. Forgive me for asking bluntly, but apart from sitting in it, did you ever have to use the ejection seat? No, no, I didn't. I got to watch an ejection oh. from a guy who couldn't get rid of uh, ordnance and couldn't land with it. So yeah, I wasn't real close to him. I heard it on the radio and watched from a distance. Wow. Was it a decent seat? Did most people survive the ejection okay? Yeah, as far as I know, nobody ever got injured. It went through the canopy glass, plexiglass on the OV-10. The top is fairly thin because it's not a pressurized aircraft. So the ejection seat just blew right through it and broke it out as it went. The seat was much quicker than, say, an F4 seat, you know, where you have canopy interlock blocks that have to be pulled in order to get the next seat to go. In the OV-10, it was just boom, boom, four-tenths of a second, you're out. Oh, gosh. I'm glad you never had to try it out, but just never know about these things. So very interesting. How about strengths and weaknesses? I mean, obviously, it's 
a designed aircraft for a lot of different things. So it probably was a little good at a lot of things and maybe not terrific at too many, but what did you really like about it? And what did you wish was uh, maybe a little better? You already talked about it was a little underperformed power-wise. The power I mentioned underpowered a little bit. Uh, would have been nice to have more power, but then you'd have to put up with the adverse problem uh, if you lost an engine. Mm-hmm. What was your favorite feature about it, Carter? It was a good airplane for a person who was not in a fighter. For a while, we had a lot of guys from Military Airlift Command, MAC, cargo guys. Mm-hmm. For them, it was like the cat's meow, the fighter of their dreams. You know, They didn't get to fly fighters, but that was something where they could go to the range and shoot bullets at targets and drop bombs, you know, little practice bombs and also uh, strafe and so forth. You could do many, many things with it. Forward air control was a lot of fun, in my opinion. You were kind of in charge of the scene. It didn't matter if the flight lead was the captain of the ship or the colonel of the base. You know, you, the forward air controller, are in charge. You could be a second lieutenant, but you're the boss. Yeah. You called the shots. And if someone wasn't performing right, I understand you could kick them out. Yeah, I never had to do that. Sometimes uh, you'd move them from like a troops in contact where you had uh, friendly troops close to the uh, target. If a guy wasn't dropping a pretty good bomb the first time, you might move him over to a different target area that wasn't as close. (laughs) I mean, that's logical, right? They couldn't say much about it. All right. You know, just to get on a tangent here, a person like that, a pilot like that, was that a daily thing? Like for whatever reason, is the aircraft or the conditions, they just couldn't bomb worth a flip today? Or were certain people just bad at bombing and other people good at it? I don't think I could answer that for sure. I I do know that some guys came out and they were sharp. And sometimes you might think it might be the aircraft, like the A-7 was a, a pretty accurate attack aircraft. The F-8 Crusaders, which apparently were real good in air-to-air, were not very good at air-to-ground. And a lot of F-8 guys who are listening to this might say, wait a minute, we never dropped bombs. Well, I'm sorry to say they did. (laughs) (laughs) And they weren't very good at it. I don't think they had the systems for it. But uh, also within a unit, sometimes you'd get a guy who just didn't look like he was uh, on the target real well. So you'd move him over to a different target. Who knows? Maybe it was just a bad day for him. Maybe he wasn't that good. That last statement would apply to me in flight school, Carter, because we flew the TA-4J Skyhawk. We would drop the blue Mark 76s, we call them. I think you maybe call them the BDU-33s. And I couldn't hit Mississippi with these darn things. I mean, I was terrible. (laughs) Other people were putting it in the 50-foot ring every time. And I just, between manual bombing, which I never had to do again, thank goodness, and the F-18, you had to get everything just right. And I don't have to tell you that, but for everyone else listening, you have to be in the right piece of the sky at the right dive angle, right airspeed, right altitude when you push the pickle button. And if the winds are the way you expected them, your bomb will go where you want. But boy, in 1994 and five, I just could not figure that out in a A4 over Mississippi. You know, you can't be perfect on every pass. It doesn't matter who you are. You can be yeah. Thunderbird or Blue Angel. You're not necessarily perfect on each pass, but The guy who can correct, you know, he's a little bit steep. So that means that his bomb's going to be a little long if all the other parameters are met. But if he releases a little bit high to compensate for the little bit of steepness, he'll still hit the target right on. Some people could make those adjustments and some could not. 
It was designed to fly fast and at treetop level, carrying 24 nuclear weapons. Today, it bristles with smart bombs and guided missiles. The B-1 bomber, called the bone by those who fly and maintain it, is the most heavily armed bomber ever built. Sleek and powerful, the bone remains a mainstay of American air power 50 years after its first flight. Hey everyone, this is Ken Katz, Call Sign Primetime, and my book, The Supersonic Bone, A Development and Operational History of the B-1 Bomber, tells the true story of this magnificent airplane. In this book, you'll read stories told to me by those who were there and see lots of great photos of the bone. Anyone with an interest in modern military aircraft will enjoy reading The Supersonic Bone, available through the usual online retailers and aviation booksellers. Pick up your copy today. All right, Carter, when you look back at your 260-ish missions over Vietnam and the OV-10, is there one that sticks out in your mind as particularly noteworthy, whether it was because it was harrowing or just something that happened? There were several. Uh, We got two checkouts on the trail. And on the second checkout, I'm in the uh, back seat just observing a qualified forward air controller do his thing. And a guy got shot down. So he had to go into this SAR role, search and air rescue, where he set everything up and called for the Jolly Greens and called for the A1s. And it was a busy time. And, you know, I wanted to ask him, what's this and what's that? You know, all this stuff was new to me. So I got introduced to a SAR situation pretty early on. That was memorable, not necessarily good. We did get the guy out. But as far as uh, remembering a mission, that certainly was one. Another one, During 1972 in Vietnam, the spring offensive came out. The Viet Cong and the NVA were very typically uh, hard to catch, hard to find. They're slipping in and out of the foliage, and they're difficult to catch, so it was hard to attack them. But during the spring offensive, they were out on the roads in plain sight. It was just a complete reversal. It was more like a, a World War II scene. We had three T-54 tanks on one of the roads south end away. Uh, we were using a laser illuminator with Mark 84s, which are 2,000-pounders. That was memorable. It took three tanks out. Carter, the OV-10, for those of us who enjoy military aviation, is well-known and loved. But to the general public, have they seen this anywhere? Of course, if you ask the same question about the F-14, everyone says, duh, Top Gun, rather. So how would the regular taxpaying public know about the OV-10? The two guys I mentioned earlier out of Carson City, I haven't been to Reno for a number of years, so I don't know what they're up to. But at one time, there were two OV-10s at Carson, and they went to air shows. In one of the Warbird magazines, there was an OV-10 near Chino, California. And I think the article said they were trying to build up five or six more. Oh, wow. Those privately owned planes might show up at air shows. I haven't seen them myself, haven't seen one at an air show, but that's a possibility. And now Cal Fire, of course, has an armload of them, and I don't know if they take the time to put them into air shows either. Those are possibilities. All right. Well, we're just about done here, Carter, but I have a couple listener questions I want to run by you, and some of them we have already covered, so I'll just read them anyway, because they're from the folks who are generous enough to support the show financially, so this is one of the perks they get. Wesley Quinlan says, one of the sought-after jumps when I was in the Army was an OV-10. 
Can you talk about how this was done? And we've already discussed this and you never had a chance to drop any folks out the back, right? No, I did not. I heard about it, read about it in our manuals and saw some of the equipment in the airplane, but never did that mission. I do have one other memorable flight that I'd like to bring up real quick. Oh, please do. Later in my career, I got reassigned to the OV-10 again, this time in Simbach, Germany. And later, my last assignment was California. While we were in Germany, the planes were reassigned to California. And they had to figure a way to get 50 OV-10s to California. One of the ways was put it on an aircraft carrier. The problem was if the carrier was called to some kind of duty, they would just push them overboard. The Air Force didn't like that idea. (laughs) So then uh, another alternative was to completely dismantle them and box them and crate them. And of course, the downside of that is putting them back together. They picked number three, which was let's fly the World War II uh, ocean crossing air route, which the OV-10 does not have air refueling. So (laughs) we went from Germany to Macrahenish, Ireland, or Scotland, I'm sorry, then Iceland, Greenland, Frobisher Bay, Canada, Goose Bay, Canada. It was about 10 hops all the way to California. It took about 15 days, uh, one hop a day. So that was quite memorable too. I believe it. So how many started and how many showed up in California? <laughs> they were done in four different trips of about 12 airplanes each. Okay. One of the guys, I went on a couple trips. One of the other trips, a guy lost an engine over Greenland. And you don't realize how thick and how high that ice is in Greenland. It's not like uh, snow on the ground in a flat area. It's, I think it's seven or 8,000 feet. So he skimped into uh, Christianstad, I think. But I wasn't on that mission, so I don't know. But other than that, uh, all the planes worked reasonably well. Okay. Uh, he probably cooled his heels there a while while they brought in another engine and the people to put it in. That probably was not as much fun as it could have been. All right. Well, those are great stories. So getting back to the listener questions, Jim Gundog has a follow-up to Wesley's and I'll read it out here. He says, we had some Marine OV-10s play with us at Fort Bragg once. They dumped some of the recon guys out the back like a parachute drop. I definitely did not want to volunteer for that honor. They had the Marine pilots laugh about the craziest stuff they heard about in the back and they recalled stories of admin flights where they had uh, quote unquote found cases of beers and steaks in the back they once had a fold-up swimming pool that belonged to some general so his question (laughs) is did you ever fly with anything in the back that was weird or odd and we didn't really talk about what else generally was carried in the back but what was normally carried around if anything and what have you carried there uh, carter in Vietnam, we were flying out of NACOM Phnom, and rather than reassigning a bunch of facts to uh, Da Nang when the spring offensive broke out, they just would TDY. So we had to haul a lot of tools and equipment and a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but mostly business kind of stuff, parts and things for the airplanes. The one adventure that was kind of fun, I was flying out of Hurlburt Field, Eglin Auxiliary 9, which is where they trained the OV-10s. This was after Vietnam. My next assignment was to be an instructor at Hurlburt. In those days, Coors beer was a big popular hit, but Coors didn't sell their beer anywhere other than on the West Coast. Well, I shouldn't say West Coast, but the Western part of the U.S. Right. So there was Coors beer available in Little Rock, Arkansas. So we flew into Little Rock and loaded up the cargo bay with about 60 cases of 
Coors. That worked out well. Did you use a Smokey call sign or Bandit call sign? Because that sounds like Smokey and the Bandit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're trying to keep it kind of quiet. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. Hopefully no uh, big parade when you got to your destination of fire engines and police helicopters and everything else. (laughs) We didn't want to have a crash. We figured we'd just turn into a big suds ball. (laughs) Yeah. Scott Manning wants to know, is the Bronco as fun to fly as it looks? And now you said it was full acrobatic, but you also said it was a little underpowered. But generally speaking, was it fun? Oh, very much so. The plane was tough and would do a lot of things, you know, and out of 10,000 feet, one of the things on the Ho Chi Minh Trail was you didn't want to just make a nice, smooth roll in and track and track and track while you shot a rocket. After all, your rocket wasn't trying to kill anything or blow up anything. You're just trying to mark the target for the fighters. So by tracking a long period of time, the gunners could get a bead on you. That wasn't the best way to do things. So we had kind of a quickie snap roll. You just floorboard the rudder, push the stick to the side you're rolling and pull on the stick. And you could do a 60 to 80 degree dive and pull out and the whole total effort you might lose two, three, four hundred feet. Wow. Try that on a 60 to 80 degree dive sometimes. You're almost firing your rocket just for a split second. You unloaded so you didn't have a bunch of Gs because otherwise the rocket would go nutty. Mm-hmm. But we could get a pretty good smoke out. You know, you're doing it every day. You got pretty good at it. I would hope so. Earlier, I said acrobatics. I guess that's people at a circus on the trapezes, but I guess aerobatics should be the uh, right terminology. But did you ever do loops and rolls and barrel rolls and aileron rolls and all that? Did did that without much fanfare? Everything. Even spins were in the book, but the prop governors uh, were controlled by oil pressure and spins were not. I think they were legal, but there was a lot of encouragement not to do spins. Mm. We had nothing in the training syllabus requiring spins. so. I saved my spin practice until I got to the T6 years later after I retired. Oh, wow. The first T6 or the newer T6? No, the older one. uh, I was a member after I retired. I joined a group out of Van Nuys, California called the Condor Squadron. Mm -hmm. And I've flown with them for about 35 years. And we all fly T6s, T6 Texans, a World War II trainer, advanced trainer. It's good plane and it spins well. My dad, he passed away in 19, but he lived right down the road from Van Nuys on Roscoe Boulevard. And I've been there enough times that I'm pretty sure I've seen you fly by at some point or other, Carter, because I would crane my head as I always do whenever I hear an airplane, let alone a few of them. And I'd see a couple coming by in formation. So that's the, and I think it was one of your buddies there in the Condor Squadron that connected us in the first place. Rob, yeah. Well, publicly, thank you, Rob. This has been a fun interview so far, but we're not done. Jevin wants to know, what was it like to fly single engine? And you said dangerous on takeoffs and landings. But if you were just up at altitude and you lost an engine, I assume you could feather the prop. Was it still pretty sporty at that point or did it handle okay? I never lost an engine. I got hit by AAA a couple of times and small arms fire a few times, but I never lost an engine except on the takeoff at Da Nang. And that was not airborne. That was on the runway. You know, we would simulate an engine failure, you know, in training and so Mm -hmm. forth just by pulling the throttle back to close to flat pitch. But as long as you had airspeed, the plane flew fine. All right. Well, speaking of that, Stance Nixon says, I once saw a Bronco, quote, hovering 
at a beach on a very windy day. My assumption at the time is it was actually moving, but very slowly. Is it possible with a combination of wind and low stall speed that it could look like it was hovering? So was it pretty decent at slow speeds? (laughs) I would uh, doubt whether it was really an OV-10. An OV-10, even unloaded with very little on board, is 8,000 pounds. And uh, I think stall speeds were down in the 60s. But Normally, with normal loads, you know, our stall speeds were 80, 85, and maybe even higher. Our takeoff uh, rotation at 13,000 was 100 knots. So there must have been quite a wind. Yeah, possibly. Or like you said, maybe it was a different aircraft. So Stance, let us know what you saw, and maybe we'll get to the bottom of it. Stan Sterling says, could you operate OV-10s off of, he says LHDs, but I'll just say Navy ships. And again, I think you mentioned even the Navy looked at that. Maybe they even demoed it, but did you ever hear much of uh, OV-10s on ships other than (laughs) the carrier option that the Air Force didn't want to do? Well, in the design criteria, they uh, talked about 800 foot takeoff roll. And I think that had to do with aircraft carriers. I'm not a carrier guy, but I guess they drive themselves into the wind at 15, 20, 25 knots. So plus they go into the wind. So, you mm-hmm. know, probably an OV-10 could take off from a carrier deck without much trouble. If What was uh, Doolittle's Raiders? What were they, B-25s? That's right. Yeah. So I'm sure an OV-10 could get off a deck. Yeah. I don't know of one doing that. I bet someone demonstrated it. For heaven's sakes, they landed a U-2 and a C-130 and... Like you said, the Doolittle guys, so just about everything's been on or off a carrier at some point. Yeah. The tri-service comment, you, I think they exclude the Marines. They kind of think of the Marines as part of the Navy. So when they use the word tri-service, I was reading about that a little bit. And it's Air Force, Army, and the Navy. Okay. And of course, the Marines are part of that. Yeah, it's always fun when you tell a Marine friend, yeah, you guys are the Department of the Navy. They always say, yeah, the men's department. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, then the last question, I don't need to ask it because you already talked about it, was uh, from Mav Minish, who says, uh, how did the Bronco do defending itself against MiG-21s and 17s and et cetera? And you talked about unloading your rockets in their face, if you could. So, Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, the guy's probably not up there looking for an OV-10. If he gets some kind of radar vector to an enemy aircraft of some sort, it turns out to be us, and he sees stuff coming off, smoke rockets coming. He doesn't know there's smoke rockets. <laughs> and we've got a lot of them. Yeah. Plus, we had four M60 machine guns, which uh, were a little short range compared to his 23 millimeter, but could still cause some problems. Absolutely. Well, look, if it's a fight to the death, of course you're going to bite, scratch, kick, gouge everything, right? I mean, you're going to do whatever you can to... uh... Sure. I mean, you can't run away from them. They're way too fast for that. So, But you can definitely outturn them. Yeah. Well, Carter, this has been interesting. And as you and I record this at the end of the month, I have a thought that I might try to get a co-host to help with this show who is involved in the OV-10 today. And of course, anyone who's listening to this will say, yeah, we just heard from that. But I don't know that sitting here today. So let me ask you, I understand the OV-10s are still bouncing around out there. Do you keep in touch with what they're doing today and where they are and what they're doing? No, other than uh, Cal Fire and a little bit that I've read, I've already mentioned, I haven't heard of anything else. Okay. The NASA comment you made earlier, that was a new one for me. That could have been one obscure aircraft that they did some 
who knows, you know, uh, atmospherics or something. But yeah, if it works out, I've got somebody in mind I'm hoping can uh, come help us uh, shed the light on what the OV-10 is doing today. So we'll let fate decide how that works out. All right. Well, so we'll talk about the future of the OV-10 perhaps with him. What about the future for you? You're up in Corvallis, Oregon. Are you retired now or? Yeah, after uh, 30 some odd years flying T-6s with the Condors out of Van Nuys, you know, we were doing memorial flights and formation flybys and advertising. We even did mock attacks on the Lane Victory. It's a cargo ship from World War II. We escorted the uh, Missouri into a port. A little of everything, you know, opening ceremony flybys over the Dodgers and Angels baseball games. And uh, in 35 years, I had a lot of fun and great crowd, good bunch of guys. Uh, But, you know, my wife was interested in grandkids up in Oregon. So we finally moved and I kind of haven't lost touch with the guys, but I'm not close enough to fly regularly. So I sold my airplane, my T-6, and bought a Cessna. I'm up here in Oregon and just kind of retired. All right. Well, that sounds divine to me because, my, like I said earlier, folks are up there and uh, there's a lot of good outdoor activities there. And having an airplane makes a lot of them even that much more accessible. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the last question I always ask my guests, Carter, is about their call sign. So, Carter Clark, did you ever have a call sign or nickname or handle you went by? Yeah, it wasn't as big a deal during Vietnam as it became later. I have a nephew who's just retired from the Air Force F-15 pilot. Judging from what he's told me about his career, you know, he had call signs and so forth from the beginning, but he's a bit younger than me. So anyway, a couple of call signs I picked up. One was uh, Puma from F-100 times, Puma the cat. Then when I went to uh, the OV-10, I didn't really have a call sign until I got to Vietnam. The call sign of the uh, group out of uh, NACOM Phnom was NAILS, N-A-I-L, uh, Nail Facts. And the paved nail was a call sign of the laser illuminator planes. You know, most of the groups in Vietnam had their own unique call signs. The Black Ponies and the Navy had down in South Vietnam, we had the Covey Facts out of Da Nang. The Rustic Facts were flying Cambodia. No, we weren't there. Everybody had their own call signs. And within our group, each person got a special number. So I, initially I was nail 7-4. We had about 65 airplanes and 100 pilots. It was a group. Should have yeah. been a wing. But anyway, it was pretty good size. And later on, I got a new call sign of nail 6 Okay. One other call sign comment that I did have. After I left the OV-10 the first time, I went into the F-4. I was in the F-4 for about 10 years. The unit I was in, I was the only OV-10 experienced guy. And so they called me Bronco. (laughs) Ah, All right. That sounds good. Let's go with that one. (laughs) Carter, you've been a lot of fun. I just thought of one more question that I want to ask you, and you're going to have to use your imagination here. So you go down to the airport where your Cessna is parked, and I can sprinkle a little fairy dust over both you and the flight line. And standing there in front of you is an F-100, an OV-10, and an F-4. And with this fairy dust, as soon as you jump in one, your procedures and everything come magically back to you. And you can go fly around and uh, goof off for an hour. Which one are you going to get in? OV-10, F-4, F-100, and the Cessna. 
Well, <laughs> I didn't mention the Cessna because I assume that's probably not at the top of the list. But of the three you told us here on the show that you flew in your career, the F-100, the F-4, and the OV-10, which one, if you could go goof around for an hour like good old days, would you jump in? And you don't have to say the OV-10 just because this is the OV-10 episode. <laughs> you know, I've been asked many times which mission, which squadron, which airplane was the most fun. And it makes a huge difference the politics. For example, the F-16, I was at Hill when the F-16 came out and replaced the F-4. The scrutiny was immense. There was five countries involved in building that airplane. Every general was looking over their shoulder. And For example, in, in Europe, the F-16 could only go cross-country to a couple places where they had F-16 equipment and maintenance personnel. But the OV-10 is a self-starting aircraft. It could start from any airport. I flew it into Eugene one time. And of course, you know, Eugene's not a military field. It self-starts. We could jump one airplane to another. Uh, had plenty of space for cargo if we wanted cargo. It was a good plane for a lot of things. So in some ways, I had more fun in the OV-10 because of the relaxed mission but yet it was uh, an important mission. It had to be done right. The F-4 was a great airplane, double ugly, lots of power and a lot of fun. I got to uh, fly as an instructor with the 3rd GAF, the German Air Force cadets. That was a lot of fun, working with foreign guys. The F-100 was my first fighter, so I have a love for that. I won the Barry Goldwater Top Gun Award at Luke in the F-100. So. It has good memories. It's really almost impossible to say which one was the best looking at all of that. But if I was just going to jump in one airplane and go have some fun, I'd probably jump in the F-4. Well, I bet you can't beat the speed and the power and the ability to put it wherever you want to uh, compared to some of the others. So yeah, I get that. That sounds good. All right, Carter, this has been a lot of fun, and I really appreciate you helping us understand the OV-10 Bronco today. It's a really great discussion. appreciate your time. Uh, you're more than welcome. It was fun. All right. Thanks again to Carter for your time today and sharing your expertise. Also, thanks to Rob Sandberg for facilitating the introductions. Convoy, I don't know about you, but man, I just really enjoy hearing these stories. Carter was awesome. I'm just so proud to know people like him. No, I agree. It's great to hear the stories of the things that they went through and trying to compare it to what we went through. They had a completely different war than we did. And it's always an honor to talk to people like that, certainly. Oh, for sure. So Carter mentioned the FAC-A and the COIN, as we call it, right? The counterinsurgency roles. But let's discuss the OV-10 today. And that's why you're here to help us out. How is the Bronco still serving? And we can pick this up wherever you think the story is relevant. But what can you tell us about what you've done and what it's still doing? Sure. Yeah. It's kind of a long story when you talk about the continued service of the OV-10 since it retired from the military and how it actually came full circle to where we actually used it as a surrogate platform for some research efforts inside of SOCOM. Across the boards, though, the OV-10 still flies with CAL FIRE. He mentioned that, you know, CAL FIRE uses the OV-10s during the fire season as fire spotters. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of companies around the country. He mentioned the folks in Chino, a uh, great group of people. They uh, love the OV-10. I think the owner of that company was a big fan of the OV-10 from the first time he saw it as a child. He grew up uh, loving the OV-10, ended up stumbling across uh, four or five platforms, uh, has bought the aircraft and turned it into his own little uh, OV-10 squadron. <laughs> 
But he has additionally partnered with a company called Blue Air. Blue Air is a great organization, government contracts, working surrogate, JTAC, CAS, FACA kind of development. They use those OB10s still in service today, obviously just as a contract agent here in the CONUS. A couple other people across the country fly versions of the OB10s. I know uh, Stallion 51 over in Kissimmee, Florida has an OB-10, or they did have last look a couple of years ago, certainly, because that's where I did my training. They uh, use the OB-10 as a uh, Stallion 51, if you're familiar. They have P-51s and T-6, and they take people flying. You can go and pay some money, and they'll take you up flying. So if you're interested in flying an OB-10, maybe that's the place to go. So there's a lot of people around the country that are still flying. Around the globe, they're slowly starting to dwindle. I know the Philippines and the Colombians were flying the OB-10s for quite a while, but in recent years, they've started to run into parts issues and part support. So they're starting to upgrade their fleet. But as far as how we came up with our OB-10s, if you want to hear that whole story, I can certainly tell you that as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, right, Carter's experience is somewhat historic, but the airplane is still being flown. So any additional details you can provide on where it's flying, what it's doing, or the models that we used. And especially, you know, I have to cover all this in one breath here, but, you know, he talked about the ordnance that they carried back then, the guns and the 500 pounders. And I'm curious what's new. And he also said it was a little underpowered. So I'm wondering if you guys are upgrading that as well. So yeah, let's just unpack all this if we can. Yeah, sure. So while I was spending my time uh, last 10 years in the military inside of SOCOM, we decided we were going to do some research and dive deep into the possibility of bringing on a low-cost light attack kind of solution to complement the fourth and fifth generation fighters. Uh, obviously, you know, those folks have a whole lot of heavy lifting to do. So while they're doing the things that they need to do in the big portions of the war, they get tired and they break down. So we kind of came up with this concept of during the extended periods, if you think about how long we were in Afghanistan and Iraq, and we really started burning through the flea of, of our fourth and fifth generation fighters at a really high expenditure rate, mm-hmm. uh, cost point, we thought maybe we could develop something that's a low-cost solution that could do the same type of things, be as effective, if arguably not more effective, because it was specifically plumbed to do the mission. In our particular point of view, we were thinking, could we develop this for AFSOC as the armed special operations branch for SOCOM? to be able to do the full find, fix, finish mission, but more in a less than permissive environment. So we had a pretty tall challenge ahead of us. We were originally flying a a couple of different versions during a program called Imminent Fury. We won't have to get into all that. It's really not the point of today's topic or discussion. When we closed down Imminent Fury, we had learned a lot of things about the capabilities. And all of a sudden, I think there was a, a lot of operational leadership that's realizing that there's something to this. So let's take a deeper dive. One day in my office, I received a visit from an executive assistant from a flag officer up at U.S. Central Command who said, hey, we're going to champion this for you. If you can go out and find an aircraft that's not politically charged, right, not involved in some type of down select or some type of program or record, can we go out and continue to fully uh, experiment across the boards with this type of capability? So we did. We'd already been talking to the folks at NASA Langley who had taken possession of a couple of the OB-10s. We can talk about models here in a second. The OB-10s that they had on their books were originally designed to be uh, some de-icing, anti-icing testing with the platforms, but they'd been sitting pretty much dormant in their aircraft hangars for several years. So when we approached them, the plan was we would take a complete bailment over to our side, take NASA completely out of the loop since they're about taking people to the moon and drinking tang, right? You know, they weren't a warfighting element at any stretch of the imagination. So we completely uh, moved the aircraft off of their books and into our control. 
And then we did a frame off restoration. The good folks at Navair, you're familiar, you know, those guys went to work and did some amazing things. Every wire, every uh, piece of the aircraft was broken down into prayed rest. And if they couldn't refurbish what was there, they replaced it with brand new. So the aircraft was about as modernized as you could make it as far as the airframe itself. But then we went in and added things like glass cockpit, a bunch of different weapon systems, some SI capability, which we'll talk about later, a whole different weapons system to modernize it, but with a specific focus of how do we best support the ground forces. That's where we got the aircraft. We went through about a two-year complete transition from the time we took them from NASA until they were ready to really start going into the training phase. During that time, I had recruited most of the people that were on our staff. You probably know well. We recruited those folks. We had three pilots, three sensor operators, or three Oh man, my Tomcat buddies are going to kill me for that. Rios, Wizzos, whatever you would like to call them in the world of armed Overwatch light attack. Mm-hmm. And then we had some contract maintainers, maintainers did great work for us, a couple of intelligence officers, and then some weapons folks that helped us maintain the aircraft. Very small group of people that we put through a pretty rigorous amount of training. We had three-star flag officer oversight of everything that we did. We trained heavily in the find fix, the signals intelligence portion, as you can imagine, uh, that was important to us. But then we also trained into the attack profiles, the close air support. But then we went crazy with things like we can land this plane on a dirt road. If you cordon off some 2,000 feet of road, we can land and pick up a casualty. If you, for example, if somebody gets shot, we can do a Kazavac or hmm. we can do our own FARP. We can land and pick up our own fuel or reload. In order to do that with such low numbers in the squadron, if you will, everybody was cross-trained. So our air crew could load ordnance. We could fuel our own airplane. We, a lot of times, would, in our cargo bay, which again, we'll talk more later, uh, we would have people riding in our cargo bay, and whether that be an assaulter or uh, our maintainer, if we're just going from point A to point B. So we quickly found that of all the light attack armed overwatch aircraft that we had flown, the OV-10, we could do things in the OV-10 that we never thought possible with the other aircraft. Well, and you probably know we had episode 124, I think it was, on 21st Century Light Attack with your buddy Spam Millam, and we talked about some of these concepts. But I'm curious, was the idea that, okay, we've got a couple, let's call them aircraft of opportunity, courtesy of NASA, and so we're going to demonstrate this and maybe we'll build more? Or was it more like, hey, let's just take what we've got and make them work the best they can, almost like a couple of unicorns? Yeah, no, the intent truly was to explore, right? We really wanted to unpack to use you know your term from earlier to see what is it about this concept that we think we know and what is it that we don't know the good thing is after five years of running the combat dragon 2 program nothing is anecdotal right we tried to go into this with no parochialisms mm. navy air force it doesn't really matter to us we just wanted to see can we prove or disprove the hypothesis that the flag officers were asking us to take a look at if it's a fat ugly baby we're going to call it so and at the end of the day what we found is that as a fighter guy, you, know, you and I both come from the same background, but as mm-hmm. a fighter guy, I have to tell you that there's a place for this. There are things, like I said earlier, that it can do that no other aircraft, it certainly it's not going to go shoot down MiGs or roll back the IADs, but when it comes into the ugly parts of war and getting into the, how do I decentralize control? How do I give my close air support? How do I push aircraft out into the field and forward operations? This aircraft is perfectly suited for those capabilities, and we stumbled upon it. It's not like that was really part of our initial tenants to go out and prove. It was something that we certainly found later that to be a very important piece of the whole 
coin armed Overwatch light attack platform. So you already talked about the fact that these things were broken down and rebuilt, and you talked about, I think, the cockpit at least. What else did you guys upgrade? Again, Carter mentioned some of the weapons and a little bit of the performance. What else did you guys get involved in? So let me go back to a couple of things that he said. You know, you talked about the OV-10A models, right? So every OV-10 was originally an A, hmm. and then they did some type of upgrade to make it a different variant. So, you know, you got the B model, which was the version that became famous because it was a towing aircraft for Germany, but they all had a couple of variations where they put a jet engine on top of it. <laughs> I've never actually seen one, just pictures, but so there's a lot of craziness that was there. Yeah. I know the C and the E were the export variants for, I think, Indonesia and maybe Thailand. I'm not exactly sure who those were exported to. They were built specifically for those countries. But then the noticeable change came when the Marine Corps decided to upgrade to what they call the OB-10D NOGS, the Night Observation Gunship System. You can tell the difference right away between an A and a D, or an A, B, C, and a D version, is because the D has an extended nose, so it's a much longer nose. And it's noticeable when you, when it's not like a Hornet and a Super Hornet, that if you don't set them right next to each other, if they are sitting right next to each other, the layperson may not know that difference, but if you put uh, an OB-10D sitting next to an A, it's pretty easy to quickly recognize that the longer nose on the D is a standout. But inside the nose, they use that for the uh, what we would call today uh, a FLIR, an EOIR camera. It was their version back in that day. The D also had two versions of the engines, right? The engines that your guest earlier was talking about were the kind of the smaller underpowered Garretts, but the upgraded D engines gave it, I think it's about 33% more horsepower. Wow. It went to a 1,040 shaft horsepower. The Garrett was a T76, 420, 421. The difference being the 420 and 421 are same engine, just different gearbox to allow for the rotating props. So that upgrade in the engine uh, was the first kind of big thing of you know noticeable difference between the capabilities of how they flew it in Vietnam and the A. It was a little bit underpowered. But you gave it the bigger motors. And then, of course, you flash forward to the next variant, OB-10G. Now, the OB-10G is actually the variant that the State Department flew. The State Department took the D, cleaned off a bunch of its systems, and put a hopper. I think it's 500-gallon hopper in the cargo bay, a spray system. And they were using it for drug eradication through different places around the globe. But we also had a little bit of a vision of what weapon systems do we put on. And if you think about, you know, back in World War II, right, we would carpet bomb with hopes that we would kill something. Right. You know, now we've progressed to the point of we'll use a uh, GPS-guided type weapon with point accuracy so we only have to drop one with a much lower collateral damage effect instead of having to drop 200 of these things to have the same probability of destruction. So those things that we thought through in our early phases of development with NAVAIR gave us the ability to take an aircraft that was relatively underpowered, even with the bigger motors, but no longer did we have to take off at the 14,400 max gross. We could operate down around the 12.5. We loved shooting the five-inch rockets. We loved shooting the 275-inch unguided rockets, but we, again, consider those to be area weapons. And we always had the collateral damage issues uh, that we know and love here in our world today. So we went back, and as a customer always is, everybody asked for where's the gun. So the first weapon we added, which was a fairly easy one, we replaced the 7.62 weapons that they had, and we put in the FN Herstal HNP 400 50 cal. We put uh, the ability to carry two. Uh, close air support dream, right? For anybody who likes close air support, if it was uh, moving on the ground, we could find it and we could shoot it. 
Now, he didn't take the bait when I talked about the 2.75-inch rockets. Aren't those called Mighty Mouse? Or am I making that up? Thought that's what we called it in the Navy, at least. You know, I think that was the original okay. name of the 275-inch. Uh, okay. Yeah. Fair enough. He also laughed at my question about the yoke versus the stick, but I thought that was a fair question. The P-38's flown by a yoke, I think. I mean, I've never flown it, but I've read about it. Yeah, fair question. You know, I used to always say I would never fly anything with a uh, windshield wiper, but the OB-10, <laughs> it had a windshield wiper as well. So Okay. And then you talked about carrying around maybe a person or two in the uh, cargo there. And do they now consider doing uh, paradroppers or whatever you'd call them? Anybody in the back that's going <laughs> to jump out in flight? Yeah, it's funny. You know, we were so close to dropping some seals out of the back. And I think of all the things that we did, there were two things that we really wish we could have done. One was the seals dropping out. Mm. But the other one was we had plans to crane on board to the uh, bush, the USS Bush. And then we were going to deck launch off once we got over to Iraq. So talk about carrier operations and dropping people out of the back. I mean, those (laughs) are things that are, yes, the OB-10 can do. Unfortunately, we just never had the chance to do it. Well, it turns out I'm not crazy because one of my Patreon listeners said that he also observed the demonstration uh, that I mentioned at the air show where the OV-10 pulled up and folks sort of fell out of the back and then their parachutes opened. That's one nice thing about Patreon is they get to listen to the unedited interviews early and then I get feedback, which I can incorporate into the episode. So apparently uh, someone else saw that too. And it makes sense that it would have been at El Toro. I I spent a lot of time there as a younger man, but... All right, Convoy, what else do we need to know about the OV-10? I mean, that was a lot of really great and interesting information. Ties in with some other discussions we've had here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, but what else is there? It's a great story that served its country well, continues to serve today. And I'll tell you, you know, I love a lot of aircraft that I've flown. I've got a lot of great passion for the F-18, obviously, carry aviation, the things that we've done. But I just have to say it again. It's a shame that the aircraft is not currently... uh, being built uh, and not on the market, because I think it certainly would be the front runner for his armed overwatch program. It's just uh, so many uh, great things that it can do. I hate to see it going away, but I certainly love my time while I was flying it. All right. Well, appreciate that convoy. And then we can now start to wrap up this episode. We'll begin by thanking our newest Patreon strike leads, Mark Townsend and Scott Kelly. And as always, the views expressed in this presentation are personal views of the hosts and our guests and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. Convoy, it was great catching up again. Appreciate you joining us here to help explain the OB-10 Bronco, particularly in light of how it's still serving six decades later. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Jello. Good seeing you. Yeah, for sure. All right, that will do it for this episode then. Join us again in 10 days when, if all goes to plan, our friend and former U.S. Air Force flight test engineer Ken Katz will return with another technical episode. You should enjoy that one. Until then, we'll see ya. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BBR Productions. Got a question for the show? Email us at questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com. Or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to follow us on your favorite social media platform and check out our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. For exclusive content and to help support the show, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. 
National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.